Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 119. I'm absolutely thrilled to bring Zach Bush, MD, onto the show today, one of the few triple board certified physicians in the US with expertise in internal medicine, endocrinology and metabolism, and hospice palliative care and the amazing science that Dr. Zach and his colleagues have delivered offer incredibly profound uh, and inspiring new insights into human health, planetary health, and general longevity of both of those, uh, because the statistics are not looking great, as we know. So, um, Zach is one of those bright minds who believes absolutely 100% that we can turn this ship around. Uh, and he shares some of the basic maths around if you look at the projections for one in three kids being diagnosed with autism by 2030, having to care for 100% of adults in the US being diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime by about 2030 as well, if we go on the current trajectory and, uh, and, and, and graph as you kind of plot it out and see how fast it's all escalating. He actually believes that that does not need to be the case. And in today's show, we go mega big picture, talk a little bit about uh, how Zach came to uh, realize some of the key things that then informed the kind of business he wanted to create and the kind of uh, people he wanted to bring in to dramatically shift in one of the most positive, beautiful ways I've ever seen described uh, the course of human health and planet health, largely by focusing on our soil. So it's a really inspiring chat and I know you guys are going to love it. And before I dip into that, I just want to let you know that we are now one week out from uh, Christmas. For those of you who celebrate gift giving, uh, I would be um, rude and probably a terrible author if I didn't just remind you that Lotox Life, the book, exists across, uh, you can get it anywhere in the world on Amazon, of course, um, but also supporting your local bookstores. In Australia, we have a, a national ranging with the wonderful Go Vita health stores. I've seen lots of people um, who are GoVita store owners posting on Instagram and Facebook. So thank you so much for your shares. Uh, and you know, if, if you don't want to support one of the big booksellers, that's absolutely fine. Chances are it's in a bookstore near you locally, wherever you are in the world. And if it's not, it's easily able to be ordered in. I've seen lots of people saying, oh, this is going to be perfect for my sister. She's just getting into all this stuff. And I love how positive it is. And how can do you make everything? And um, and then a lot of people wanting to kind of stealthily give it to naysayer friends um, because I always say in the form of a gift, uh, it, it, can, it can come across as generosity rather than, oh, my gosh, my friend's always trying to tell me everything I'm doing is toxic. So it can be a very handy little way to get people thinking. Um, thank you to everybody who is buying the book for this festive season. And uh, and if you haven't grabbed a copy or if you're worrying about your gift giving, then do consider it because it is a very positive, beautiful, friendly read when it comes to doing better by people and planet. Uh, I really worked very hard over those words to make sure that people would come out the other end feeling hopeful and positive and like, they could see things around in their life, in their everyday home uh, choices that they make that can make profound and beautiful impacts um, on our health and our planet's health. So that's my little plug for the book. Um, and, uh, and of course, if you are strapped for ideas for gifting, we also have all of our e-courses as gift vouchers readily available to be gifted and then they receive the coupon code to register themselves uh, at uh, once you've purchased the gift for them. So you can jump onto the show notes today, lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast, and I'll pop the links to both where you can find the book and also how you can gift one of the e-courses as a gift voucher, just in case that interests you. Uh, if you are still thinking about other gifts, I have a fantastic edit of all sorts of ideas and I've popped those in the show notes as well. So uh, I'm not going to talk too much in this intro other than to say I adored this chat with Zach. I've also put in the show notes several others of his 
best lectures and other places he's appeared on uh, other podcasts where he dives quite deeply into um, soil and some of the more technical aspects of the soil that he uncovered when differentiating between healthy and unhealthy soil and uh, and also into glyphosate. So today, given how precious time is, I really wanted to go where the conversation took us um, and be quite big picture thinking and uh, discuss the things that came up today. But if you're interested in learning more about Zach, in seeing him speak uh, in a few more different sort of a few wider contexts than today's chat. I've shared those in the show notes as well, because it is well worth watching at least two or three of his um, lectures or listening to a couple of other podcasts to really get an idea of the breadth of uh, his uh, understanding and knowledge. He's a spectacular dude. So enjoy my chat with Zach as much as I enjoyed having it. Can't wait to see what you guys think. Hey, Zach, how are you? Very good. Thank you, Alex, for having me on. I am very excited about the chat we're about to have. And uh, in in doing my research, uh, I I listened to many of your lectures and and other podcasts. And uh, there is just so much I want to ask you. It's like I want to do a 10-part series with Zach. But but for the the purpose of today, I think it would be really amazing to pick your brain on this glyphosate issue. It's kind of one of those issues that we're so enmeshed in this stuff that um, it's almost impossible to see how we're going to come out of it, right? And uh, when I hear you speak about it, I always get a sense of hope around that and it certainly fuels me to continue educating on the subject and I know it's going to impact people out there. So to start, I would love to kind of, I guess, hone in on the the fact that you started well you didn't start with the development of chemotherapy drugs you were doing a heck of a lot of study before then but to go from designing chemotherapy drugs to the study of soil for optimal human health it's quite a journey and I expect that that uh, had many twists and turns, ahas, and oh my whoa! Um, could you <laughs> yeah, could you get, could you take us through some of those highlights during those years? Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, as you said, it was a long journey, so I'll try to spare you most of the details. But um, I was in academia for about seventeen years, you know, in different forms of training, and then ultimately. Uh, I got my MD out in uh, Colorado and then uh, moved to the University of Virginia for my residency in internal medicine. I went on to a chief residency there where I was teaching uh, med students residents uh, and the like and then went on to a three-year fellowship in endocrinology and metabolism, which is the further study of hormones and how they regulate the human body and, and sim- you know create this symphony of uh, you know, coordination between the different organs and everything else. In addition to studying the metabolism, which is the mitochondria uh, inside of our cells at the end point. And the mitochondria, uh, even in biology 101, are, are mentioned as the powerhouse or the power plant of the human cell. What's often not mentioned there is that they're actually not human. They actually uh, look more like bacteria, but they have a DNA that's more similar to virus. So there's this weird piece of the microbiome that lives inside of our cells. And it seems to be obligately inside. They can't survive outside of a eukaryotic cell. And so interesting mashup of the microbiome inside of human cells to allow even the single egg of a woman that would go on to be fertilized into a fetus. Uh, Even at that point in life, we're more mitochondria than we are human cell. There's some 200 uh, mitochondria in a typical human cell. And so you've got this, you know, very interesting dependence upon uh, this non-human species from the beginning of life. And it was interesting in my chemotherapy to kind of go down the avenue to find out that in the end, the next frontier of cancer is going to be not in, you know, figuring out how to kill cancer cells, not figuring out how to get the immune system to find cancer, but it's actually just going to be to inform cancer cells that they're damaged and they need to commit suicide. And that process is called apoptosis. And so that was my area of niche for Uh, the chemotherapy world, I was studying apoptosis mechanisms through nutritional compounds, vitamin A being the specific one I was working on. And so working on uh, the downstream signaling of vitamin A uh, to turn on in mitochondria this cell suicide in cancer cells. So it was a really new niche at the time. This was in 2005, 2010 era. 
And so it was an exciting new time uh, for me. And, you know, there was a few people around the world that cared about it at the time. Uh, it was definitely outside of the purview of our typical approach to chemotherapy. So it, it ended up not being funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I actually got shut my research down basically by the pharmaceutical industry um, and loss of funding through the National Institutes of Health as the economy collapsed in 2008 to 10. And how did that um, so impact that you kind of- as someone who would put so much work into this and, and research that obviously showed so much promise? Yeah, it was definitely a, an overwhelming time for me as a human being, as well as a physician. I was yeah. you know, really questioning my my purpose in the world and my my life, and I was you know very much isolated in academia. You fi- you quickly find out after you finish all of your training and you get put in on a in kind of a, an early faculty position, as I was at the University of Virginia. I was just called a clinical instructor and was doing research, and I was trying to teach and see patients, and you know juggling fifteen balls and making not nowhere near enough money to even pay off my school debt, let alone get my kids through college and everything else that was coming down the pike. So it was a desperate time for me financially and morally and emotionally and everything else. And in that collapse, really kind of started to really ask, well, what is real? What do I know is real? What do I really want to do with my life? And in that time, you know, came to the sobering reality that there had never been a cancer in the history of mankind that had been caused by a lack of chemotherapy. <laughs> and, and so that kind of obvious, you know, conclusion really showed me that I, I was fundamentally going down some wrong or, uh, you know, at least, you know, pie in the sky route that was not going to get me to any root cause solution for my patients or humanity at large. Yeah. And so that yeah. began my turning point and started to really start to ask bigger questions around our understanding of cancer. What is it? Where does it come from? And interestingly, I was very well equipped to start to look at that science uh, through the, the realm of these mitochondria. Um, and so that's kind of where things were by the time I, I suddenly lost everything at the University of Virginia. They made it clear I was going to need to leave. And so then I had to make a decision. Was I going to go back into some other academic position somewhere else in the country? Or was I going to start, you know, do something on my own? And that was a, a terrifying decision point. But I felt like I had already seen the pinnacle of University of Colorado. Totally different mindset, I thought, at University of Virginia. By the time I got to the pinnacle of both those uh, training environments found out that it's really the same economy and the same mindset, the same political you know environment and everything else. And I wasn't you know wasn't seeing any light at the end of the tunnel. I, I saw a thirty year career before I could really have an impact on the on the world. And the numbers that we're currently steeped in just didn't give me thirty years to have impact. Mm. You know, we're starting to look, have a realistic endpoint to our species here. And if we only have 60 or 70 years left as a species with our current trajectory, and maybe only 16 years left for viability of the American healthcare system, I was going to have to look more aggressively at something else. And so made the decision to leave academia in 2010 and started my own nutrition center in rural Virginia, with really the goal to find a really fundamental way of teaching health and nutrition that would reach the most impoverished people in the most uh, extreme food deserts of our country. Figuring that if I could really crack the code on nutrition and nutrition education, then maybe I could participate in a revolution of, of the healthcare industry and really help us get back uh, to sort some sort of semblance of health as a nation. Um, the, over the next two years, we would see human health collapse even faster, and so by then 2012 was rolling around. Uh, we were r- ranked you know, 49th in the world for health outcomes. Uh, a lot of developing countries having better health outcomes than the United States of America. And it was clear that you know everything that we had tried was not working. Chemotherapy was failing. You know, studies coming out to show that 87% of uh, chemotherapy studies that had dictated the development of our current practices could not be uh, replicated by non-pharmaceutical studies. Wow, we that at, is huge. That was a terrifying statistic. And so if if 87% of the studies that dictate our, our behavior as physicians and oncologists and the like are erroneous or un- unre- cannot be replicated, then it means that we've got really nothing for the end user uh, to look forward to. And so all of that was demanding that I accelerate my pace to kind of asking these root cause situations and not having let go of the cancer kind of in the back of my mind as far as the pathophysiology and trying to do that. It became clear over the 2010 era that uh, the microbiome, the bacteria and fungi in our gut 
was starting to correlate hugely with the types of cancer that show up in our body. And so uh, we were showing out of UCSF and UCSD and these different programs that if you, you know, genetically sequence the microbiome of the, of the bowel, you find out that if you're missing these species, then you're really prone to colon cancer. You're missing these species, you get breast cancer, et cetera. From my you know, perspective as a chemotherapy researcher and cancer guy, it didn't fit at all in the purview of, of what we thought the pathophysiology of cancer was. It didn't make any sense whatsoever that the microbiome could somehow have an early predictive role in what types of cancer we would get. Mm. And can I, just pause you, can I just pause you there, Zach, because in yeah. one of your lectures, you share a, a breast cancer case study where a biopsy was done and there's a particular type of bacteria that was found. And so you start to see that this particular type of bacteria is found in multiple breast uh, biopsies. But the interesting thing, which was such an aha for me, was that you you supposed when you started the research that the more of this bacteria, i.e. it must be bad bacteria because there's so much of it there, um, the less aggressive the cancer. That's right. You're spot on. Yeah, it was an extraordinary study coming out in 2014. They biopsied both the cancer uh, breast and the, the healthy breast in the same w- women. And so relatively good-sized trial. And what they found is that across all of these women with somewhat you know variant types of breast cancer had the same bacteria showing up in the cancer, which was methylobacterium radiotolerance. And that methylobacterium is, is a bacteria that can survive in pretty pretty acidic, anoxic environments, lack of oxygen and acidity uh, present there. And in the healthy breast, in the same women, you find a different bacteria present, which is sphingomonas, which is an aerobic bacteria. It's a bizarre leap as a physician to make the realization that the healthy human breast is full of bacteria. That is not taught to us in medical school or anywhere mm. at this stage of the game. And so, but that is increasingly now recognized that there's healthy populations of bacteria in our kidneys, in our, in our prostate, in our, you know, every organ you can think of where our cells are being nursemated, taken care of, and probably nutrified through the bacteria that are taking care of that population. Yeah. And so um, that study then went on to, to ask the question, of course, you know, maybe methylobacterium is an infectious process that's causing breast cancer in, in this other breast. And so they did the correlation, as you mentioned, where they take a look at the dent, the amount of bacteria versus the aggressiveness of the cancer. And of course, it was an absolute inverse of the expected, which was that the more sterile the cancer got, the more we wiped out the bacteria, the more aggressive the cancers got, and the more likely the woman would die of the breast cancer. It's not so isn't a stunning it? realization yeah. that the human body is in a vibrant ecosystem, nigh onto you know a biodynamic organic garden regenerative agriculture in the soil being replicated in our cells that we can regenerate we can be full of life and vitality with enough microbiome present and it's the the constant assault on that microbiome through everything from hand sanitizers and antibiotic use from our doctors to the food chain and that glyphosate molecule that you mentioned early on so all of these are wiping out the microbiome as we know it leaving us very vulnerable to this isolation event which is cancer mm. And so in your nutrition program that you started when you, um, you had your moment of disillusionment, but, but wanted to kind of, you realized you wanted to go out on your own. You didn't start with organic straight away, right? Yeah. I, you know, jumped right in initially into, um, you know, a nutrition, uh, diet or trying to figure out what was the best diet. Cause I thought that nutrition science was steeped in, you know, is it, should it be paleo? Should it, I mean, at that time it wasn't even paleo, it was Atkins diet, right? Again. So we had the Atkins yeah. diet, we had uh, the vegan diet, we had, you know, vegetarian versions. And at the time it was pretty clear that, you know, the, the preponderance of the evidence was really in the plants. And so the, the plant-based diet became uh, a real stalwart part of my clinic. I was teaching people how to convert to a plant-dominant diet where they would decrease uh, their meat intake to maybe a couple pieces of fish a month. And otherwise, they were eating, you know, uh, all plants all the time. As more variety, the better. And in that journey, found that a lot of them were actually getting more inflamed, not less, which was going against 40 years of nutrition science coming out of Cornell and other universities, 
really showing that all the anti-inflammatories in something like kale should have all these medicinal alkaloids and anti-cancer effects and all kinds of benefits. And I was watching my patients decline on you know, large amounts of kale and kale juicing and greens. And you know, I was loading these patients up, always the kind of fervent, you know, go big or go, go home <laughs> kind of personality of mine. And, uh, and to, to come to that humbling conclusion after two years, it, it took me two years to really convince myself that these patients were doing exactly what I was asking them to do. Because, of course, when we see things go in, the, in a direction that we don't expect, we always blame somebody else. Yeah, so we're like, are you sure are you're not going to McDonald's on the way yeah. home? <laughs> yeah, certainly you're eating Twinkies in the, yeah. you know, after 9 p.m. or something. Like, I was convinced, you know, and these, you know, and these patients would have had every reason to not be compliant because they were, you know, fifth generation poverty growing up in rural Virginia, closest grocery stores 30 miles away, most of them eating out of gas stations, like, you know, so we were starting at the at the very basic, you know, realm of food, food deserts. And so I just assumed, yeah, it's because they're in a food desert. But to find out these people were going through all the efforts to make this stuff happen and seeing increased inflammation made me realize that we had mistook uh, our understanding of nutrition science just as we have perhaps cancer. And so that's when we really started to question what is in a plant? What is what is a micronutrient? What are in the plants now versus 40 years ago? What's in the soil that would engender that change or, or be responsible for a drop in nutrients? Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit of that journey into realizing that human health was, uh, you know, in, intrinsically laced and, and intertwined with soil health. And it was our uh, debut into that soil health that really made us our big breakthrough in 2012. Yeah, amazing. I often say in my talks, um, kind of helping us all realize it's a very cultural and systematic failing, not our failing personally, because we like to blame ourselves and feel ashamed when we aren't healthy. Uh, and it must be me that's not doing the diet right and, and all of that kind of stuff. But it's so criminal to have gone through 13 years of school, four years of university. I didn't do quite as many years as you, Zach. <laughs> um, and never once be taught about what goes on and in us and how it impacts my health or the planet. And I think that is just the hugest failing in our school and education systems in, um, in the West. And, um, speaking of failings, you know, you went through 17 years of medical academia and no one really mentions plants or whether you ate organic or not as a potential impact on human or planetary health. So as you start to edge towards realizing that how something's grown and the health of the soil is key, what happens in a professional setting when you start talking to colleagues um, and start trying to get traction for that? And then uh, part B to that is obviously let's see how what evolved from there in terms of what you realized about the soil well in 2010 it was met with an enormous amount of skepticism and head shaking and and just dumbfoundedness they had really you know, university of virginia and before that university of colorado they had really been grooming me for an academic position the rest of my life i had been kind of at the top of you know all their curves and they kept investing more and more in my education you know to make sure that i was going to be well prepared to run a department of medicine someday or whatever you know kind of usual typical ladder i was supposed to climb and when they found out that i was going to move to a rural you know community of that was impoverished and start a nutrition clinic of all things it just it was it was a sense of dumbfoundedness there like how can that ever make you any money how can that ever be successful. How can you know? What are you trying? Where'd you go? Where where do you? Where, you're not gonna be able to teach. You're not gonna be able to do research. You're not gonna be able to do any of the things that you've gotten all these awards for. Why are you rejecting all this? Now, of course, you know, eight eight years later, I teach more than I ever did at the university. I have my own basic science research labs. I have three biotech companies. I teach all the time. I do research all the time. I get to ask questions that I like asking all the time. I don't need to beg anybody else for money. I, you know, all of my companies generate our own research dollars so that we can ask ever more, you know, challenging and, and kind of root cause problems um, to find out that, you know, really the solution for human health is not the supplements we make in the long run. It's to change farming. And so we're putting all of our money back. We're trying to put our own companies out of business now by teaching farmers how to how to grow without pesticides and herbicides. Uh, so that our children have some hope of a future, and that's that can't be done in an academic setting. Frankly, it's hard to do in a 
in a you know, business setting if you're yeah. going to rely on things yeah. like venture capital or things like that that you know about, that peg you on the ever growing goal of just growing money and mm -hmm. and so I've just had this huge luxury over the last eight years to be surrounded by some initial angel investors who said you know I just want you know we're gonna put this money behind you let's see if you can change the course of human history and you know let's do this thing and don't worry about the money we'll, we'll if this works everybody will make plenty of money in the long run but don't sweat it and so to be gifted with that what kind of opportunity to you know have angels around me and then really my patients became my main workforce my patients were so awesome at just you know really uh, dedicating themselves to the mission of doing whatever we asked well and really helping contribute to the early development of this science and uh, give us insight into what was happening into their bodies as they started the healing process because as soon as I started to be able to to push people down this healing pathway I was seeing the stuff that I didn't know was possible and so I didn't have any physiology to even understand how the healing process was was denoting such dramatic and ridiculous things and so my patients really became this incredible partnership to me and uh, my colleagues that have been collected in this project are the most esoteric group of people you could imagine uh, very few of them trained in, in uh, allopathic medicine and so just brilliant brilliant minds from around the country and are now around the world that are uh, dedicated to changing the course of uh, of our human knowledge and how we interact with our ecosystem. So, I, I gotta say, it's I have to pitch myself still to to believe that all this has happened in eight years, uh, mm -hmm. even where I was, you know, three and a half years compared to today. I was still in that same rural community, 550 people practicing out of the plumbing building that my son and I had renovated, um, and and you know had this little tiny lab going. Now we've accelerated into an international force. We're, we're in 120 different countries worldwide. And, you know, just like it's unbelievable what's happened. And it's not because I'm super smart or I asked some special question. It has to do with just a willingness in the end to deconstruct what we've been taught and apply all the knowledge we've accumulated to a new paradigm and a new understanding of, of science. And we start to engage everybody around us as a collaborator. And so we're so convinced by the success of this that we're now pouring a lot of our funds into developing a, a new platform for the whole world to do exactly what I got to do, which is see the whole world as your collaborators and really accelerate knowledge. Uh, that platform is coming out in 2019 and it's going to be a real reinvention of the Internet where instead of you know all of your curiosity and efforts to connect to people uh, that currently goes on online, all of that is just you know, lining the pockets of big advertising companies called Google or Facebook or Amazon. And these multi-billion, billion, billion dollar corporations now own all of your data. And so we're going to reinvent this internet uh, for humanity and protect a space there where nobody owns your data but you and allow you to connect to people as true collaborators, not as people who are going to just trying to leverage you and your, your stuff for their own profit. And so we really are excited about recreating my story and my journey for everybody on the planet. Everybody I find has a curiosity in them. Everybody has a, a good idea. Um, you know, my dad you know, went through very standard work effort through his uh, many decades of work, ended up retiring with IBM. But even he had some really clever ideas of little fun inventions that could have really caught traction and changed the course of his uh, earning potential as well as just his fun and his sense of curiosity and, and self-reward if he had been surrounded by the right resources. So I think anybody with any course, uh, you can't help it. If you're human, you are creative. Mm -hmm. If you're not give, being given the, the opportunity to pursue those creative outlets, you're, you're not really living the essence of life. And so as unbelievable as my story is, I think it's very repeatable and I'm very eager to open up those opportunities for everybody. How amazing, Zach. And I, I really thank you for being the big picture thinker that you are because it takes leadership like the, the leadership you, um, you have to, to just inspire everybody to realize they can step into that curiosity. I think, uh, we try to get constantly shut down all around us by our curiosity. And I, you know, I experienced it. It's why I call myself, I can, like, it's why I say I could never be an employee ever again, <laughs> unless yeah. I'm in a, a, in a group of, of real like minds. I, I bet I could work with you, but you know, it's, <laughs> that's right. It's, you could. It's so interesting to me how, um, some people do, realize they feel stifled and boxed in and 
They just have something deep down inside them. Do you think that comes down to people's upbringing as to whether they have the courage to step out on that limb or, you know, an amazing influence that they had along the way or just an innate sense that there's a different truth for me, there's a, there's is a truth for me and it ain't this? I'm sure there's, you know, a thousand pathways into that light. Mm. Um, I think that uh, for me it was definitely a burning, you know, drive within me that, really kind of drove me crazy for quite a while in my life where I was just like, I just couldn't stop pushing, you know, up higher of knowledge and education and learning and read every book, watch every documentary. Like I, I just, I remain to this day pretty insatiable on information. And so for me, it's that kind of internal drive of like, everything seems to be d being done the wrong way, whether it's the way we do transportation, healthcare, you know, energy, education, you name it, uh, we're doing it wrong because it's completely non-sustainable and it's you know, destroying sectors of our economy. Um, the only sector of economy that ever seems to grow is in the U.S. is now something called you know, the stock exchange where we just grow money, we don't actually produce anything. And so we're just doing everything wrong on every level, which is a huge opportunity for humanity to say, you know what, we could do this, everything completely differently and play here on earth longer. Or we can continue in unsustainable methods throughout, you know, all of these sectors and crash our species into the wall, mm. along with much of the rest of the biology on Earth. We've extincted 40% of the biology on Earth in 50 years. Crazy. And so we're almost halfway done with this great extinction on Earth by our own hands. Mm. And after another 70 years, I think we will have probably annihilated some 90% of, of, of life on Earth and uh, will we'll then disappear. Or we could simply do everything differently immediately so that we have a couple decades to try to rescue as much as we can of what's on Earth today and participate in a co-creative process with Mother Nature to get to a real future for our species and for the planet itself. Yeah. And in terms of decimation, let's talk about some of the health facts that really start to build a very uh, clear urgency around this. Share some stats. Yeah, they're they're not good. So, no, they're really um, not. <laughs> in in, uh, in, two, in the 1960s in the United States, four percent of our population had a chronic disease. Now in the United States, 46 percent of our children have a chronic disease, and they start on the day one of life. In the United States, we actually have the highest death rate on day one of any developed country in the world. Um, and so, a daunting reality that we're screwing it up from second uh, from you know the word go. Uh, then we have extraordinary rates of asthma and allergy in those first couple years. And so, uh, you know, dysfunction of the immune system appearing almost immediately. It starts with colic in our, our neonates and then moves into upper respiratory infections, ear infections and the like, and gets us hit with antibiotics early on. And then, then by the time we're three and four years old, we have, one, you know, one in eight children with asthma. Uh, but that's a scary number because we don't actually in the United States do universal screening for asthma, uh, whereas in Australia you actually do, and and we see one in four children in Australia with asthma now, mm. and so these numbers are really dramatic. If you add up all the chronic diseases in our children now, uh, from you know cancers, metabolic disorders, uh, the attention deficit, the autism, all of these conditions now add up to 46% of our children with a chronic disease. So 4% of the population as a whole in 1960s with a chronic disease to 46% of our children with a chronic disease now. Uh, it's, it doesn't get much more grim because our children, uh, as they grow up, are going to be faced to support the largest geriatric population with the highest cancer rates ever in history. And they'll be uh, sicker the than States, ever trying to do it too. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. And. Uh, our children, are, I'm sorry, our, our adults in the United States, males just hit one in two with cancer. We now have 50% of males uh, with cancer, just shy of that at 49.5 or something ridiculous. And so uh, women at one in three with cancer in the United States now by the time they die, and none of that even counts skin cancer. Those are solid organ or bone marrow or bloodstream cancers that are, are developing. So uh, amazing burden. We're on target to be have 70% of our adult population with cancer by 2030 and we'll have one in three children with autism. Uh, autism is one of these extraordinary events that really we can't escape from. I mean, there's so many efforts to be in denial about our cancer rates. Well, the MRIs are fancier or our PET scans now can see things we couldn't used to see and all of that's true. 
except we always used to die and autopsies were were not a new thing we've been doing autopsies since you know the 1700s with quite reg some regularity and we would have seen all that cancer had it been there undiagnosed and so the cancer is exploding but autism is wonderful because it's so visible and it's visible in our children so quickly and so at 18 months of age two years suddenly a child loses their verbal capacity loses their ability to look at mom and dad in the eye becomes emotionally overwhelmed is in sensory processing deficits and takes decades to try to recover from this injury what the heck is that what is going on with that condition we had one in five thousand children with autism in 1975 and now in the united states we have one in 36 as of 2016. we don't even have more recent numbers but we're on par to continue to double that number every three years uh, 2012 we were at 1 in 88 by 2015 we were at like 1 in 44 now following year 1 in 36 so you're seeing the march and we're on target in the United States to have 1 in 3 children with autism spectrum disorder by the mid 2030s that's some 15 16 years away depending on how you dice the numbers and so that is going to cripple the economy of the United States flat out there's no economy on the planet that can handle 1 in 3 children with autism and 70% of the adults with cancer uh, so we're staring at the end point, and uh, you know that can that that's sobering. We should be sobered by that. This is like uh, when you find out a loved one has a terminal condition. Well, you just found out that the loved one called Homo sapien, your species, has a terminal condition, and we've got you know four, 14 to 16 years to come up with a viable solution in the developed world. And we've got the same amount of time to make sure we don't make the same mistakes in the developing world that we've already made here. And unfortunately, that does not look good. No, it doesn't. Uh, well, often the developed world passes on its mistakes to the developing world, doesn't it? It's exactly the pattern we're doing now. Yeah. And we see, you know, one good mistake that I can point to is uh, the C-section. We do C-sections largely out of convenience. Um, some 32% of births in the United States are done by C-section uh, on average, but we have a lot of hospitals that are reporting upwards of 44 47% of their births done by C-section. Well, that's terrible for a developed country, but we've passed that, that mystique and belief system of convenience and, and apparent safety uh, onto countries like China, and China is now 51% of their births. Uh, as a whole country by C-section. That is a devastating number. Those children are born sterile without a microbiome and they are doomed to a very long path of immune dysfunction um, starting from day one of birth because they don't have the, the foundation of mom's microflora that they should have inherited in the vaginal canal. And so it's a really terrifying reality that, you know, as we start to apply these kind of Western medical belief systems and philosophies on a country like China that has had brilliant medicine for 6,000 years, mm. uh, you know, developed Chinese herbal medicine and acupuncture and all these extraordinarily insightful ways to engage humanity in an intrinsic healing capacity, gone in a single generation, gone to the tune of 51% of births now done in a sterile uh, C-section in a hospital somewhere. And so it's a terrifying encroachment on the developed world. Brazil is now dumping more uh, Roundup into their water systems than the United States is. Australia, you guys are steeped in Roundup. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just an amazing journey for you guys. Largely, uh, it's not actually the product Roundup. It's actually glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. It went off patent in 2007. Australia signed the free trade agreement with uh, China. And so the vast majority of your glyphosate is being trafficked in pennies on the dollar from China rather than from Monsanto in the United States, now owned by Bayer in Germany. Yeah, wow. Um, so <laughs> there's so much to unpack there. So uh, in terms of um, C-sections, I just want to stay there because there are a lot of people, myself included, who had to have an emergency C-section or who may have elected to and didn't realize. Um, is there hope for us and our children? Like I, my, I had a wonderful naturopath who uh, you know, went straight into damage control on flora and, you know, probiotic therapy and all that good stuff. Um, and now more and more people are learning about swabbing. Um, and if you haven't out there, if you're listening, uh, go check out the film Microbirth. It's a fantastic documentary that teaches you all about that if you're looking, staring down the barrel of a C-section potentially for whatever reason. But Zach, um, uh, if... 
if you have a child and, and you didn't know any of this and five years ago you had a C-section elective or otherwise, what are some of the best things to do now? Is it to start hitting the fermented foods and, and probiotic therapy? Yeah, so the fermented foods is a good avenue as long as it's a wild ferment. And the probiotics are now uh, need to be on the way out quickly. Unfortunately, I think it's going to take us 20 years to, to, to you know change the direction of a huge mistake we made with probiotics. Um, but uh, probiotics is now you know like a $37 billion in industry annually. And um, it, there's no science really behind it to say that it's ever been effective for the general population to be consuming these. Perhaps there's a few little niche uh, disease states or other things that could be uh, uniformly recommended probiotics to yet, but I, I have concerns that now that we know how to study these, we're going to find out that we're doing harm everywhere we do it. The largest study to date that was the most thorough on showing the potential uh, harm of probiotics just came out in September of 2018 here. Uh, the journal is Cell, C-E-L-L. Uh, and uh, that is one of the most you know rigorous peer-reviewed journals on the on earth and uh, the journal did this in multiple species uh, rodent and human and showed that after two weeks of antibiotic uh, which is the number one recommendation that i always made was like ah, probiotics aren't good for long-term use but right after an antibiotic it makes sense and so they they put it in to use at where should have been the biggest possible impact and what they showed in the rodents immediately was that despite like three to five days of improved microflora recovery, um, within a week they had flattened back out at the same devastatingly low amount of microbiome they had had after, after the antibiotic. And if left on those, they never recovered from that baseline. So at 50 days out, they still look just as bad as if they had stayed on antibiotics the entire time. Wow. And so devastating reality that probiotics may be, you know, akin to a pro an antibiotic event where you're overwhelming what should be this diversifying ecosystem by three or five or 12 species. And by so doing, you're, you're blocking the ability of the other thousands of species that should be moving in there to repopulate. Interestingly, they had a control arm where there was nothing given. And by 30 days, all of the, the animals in the study had returned to uh, their, their normal microbiome baseline with no intervention whatsoever. And so uh, daunting that you know, we completely halted with probiotics. And if we just simply did nothing, they would get better. In repeating the study in humans, they showed that at six months, the humans still hadn't recovered microbiome. They did slowly show a trend towards recovery, but still at six months, no, no, not statistically, uh, you know, back in the same ballpark again. So really slow, slow recovery after antibiotics if you're on a probiotic. All of the humans in the study had returned to normal baseline within 30 days if no probiotics were given. So we've made a huge mistake, a huge misunderstanding, and it was largely because of our misdefinition of the microbiome. We just thought that lots of bacteria was good, and so we thought that 50 billion copies of the same bacteria was just fine. That would move us towards more bacteria, which would be good for the organism. Mm. In the end, we find out that it's not the number it's, uh, of, of bacteria, it's the number of species. It's the diversity that really lends itself to human health. And so really big shift needs to happen away from the probiotics, away from the prebiotics that feed you know, very narrow spectrums of the bacterial kingdom and start to really reconnect ourselves to nature. And that's where something like an air fermented food would differ. If you air ferment cabbage into sauerkraut, you're going to end up with thousands of species in niche balance that have all worked together to create some sort of eco-balance within that brine of the uh, fermenting food. And you're now eating in a balanced ecosystem by the time you consume it. That's moving us towards health. And of course, every people group on the planet had fermented foods as a routine in their diet until the 1950s when we phased in widespread refrigeration and we got, all got lazy. We stopped fermenting our foods. And so we got to get back to real fermentation, reconnect through that. But more than that, we need to stop living in drywall boxes, driving in plastic lined cars, sitting in you know carpeted buildings all day and start getting outside. We need to breathe mm. the real air, real microbiome needs to be reaching our lungs reaching our sinuses so that we could start to seed microbiome diversity back into our health again. And so uh, step one for a cancer patient in my clinic is move. And that whatever you've done in your environment has allowed you to get this cancer, which is an extraordinarily 
perfect storm that you had to engineer to allow yourself to have a cancer because there's so many blocks in the human physiology to keep you from having cancer. So you did all these different things that had to work together to go wrong to this degree that you have cancer. So let's move. Let's go to a totally different ecosystem. Let's move you into a home where there's different food, different breath, different everything, different sleep patterns, different sun day cycles that you're touching the ocean every day, something. And so I have people swap houses with family members or friends or whatever it takes to find them a new microbiome for a few months and then get everybody living outside again, touching the dirt, touching the soil, growing food, seeing real sunshine, breathing real air. This is the pathway back to an intelligent microbiome. And you know we're using now as support, of course, the the, the fossil soils. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into that or not. And we'll, uh, but yeah, I'll leave definitely. It at, uh, yeah. The fact that yeah. fossil soils have some unique intelligence in them that we can look to, kind of learn from in our farming practices and the like. Um, but in in the end, the big picture is get plugged back into nature and its all of its beauty and complexity. Co-create life there. Co-create health there. And I think we become bulletproof again. Amazing. And so. In terms of, let's go back to Virginia, because I really want to hone in on this aha moment that you had, that there was something wrong with the soil and how you then started to join the dots to glyphosate. Can you share a little bit of that journey? Yeah, so uh, we had started asking the questions around um, why the food was hurting our patients. How Mm. could their inflammation markers be going up, not down, eating kale? and uh, and the like and so we started diving into uh, the soil science and on 40 page 40 or so of this white paper that a colleague of mine had brought in uh, was a giant carbon molecule and the and the right hand side of this molecule if imagined in the three-dimensional structure uh, looked a lot like the chemotherapy I used to make and you know to this day I really believe that those 17 years in academia all my cell biology biochemistry all the stuff I memorized uh, that was being utilized for the pharmaceutical industry it was all waiting there in me and, and it was re- waiting for me to realize really my my full purpose which was to reconnect something uh, of humanity back to the soil and so in that moment uh, found these molecules it took a couple weeks to find out that they were all being made by bacteria and fungi and once that connection had been had then suddenly all of the dots lined up okay if we lose microbiome in the gut we become prone to cancers. Why? Because those bacteria in the soil or in our guts can actually make the molecules that would inform our cells to prevent the cancer in the first place. And so that was the piece I had been missing. And frankly, that's the piece that to this day is missing in academia, is all these universities keep saying, well, this bacteria is missing or present in this cancer or whatever it is. Well, that's fine, but all you're making is correlations. Show me the cause. And I think I have the cause sitting here in fossil soil, which is in fossil soils, when we see a really coherent, highly diverse, extremely intelligent soil ecosystem working some 60 million years ago, right before the collapse of the topsoil on the planet, which happened to the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs went extinct largely because of this loss of topsoil. We, we put a, an inch of dust over the entire planet with an asteroid that hit or a massive volcanic event. There's debate on what happened, but we know in the fossil layer, there's this layer of dust that covered the soils and suddenly that anaerobic loss of, of topsoil led to this decline. So since then, we've never recovered that depth of topsoil or intelligence that would have grown the kind of plant life that would have allowed something as diverse and massive as a, an Allosaurus or a Brontosaurus plant-eating dinosaur to survive on a nutrient load that that soil could deliver. And so we've never seen that that kind of biology function on this planet, either at the soil or at the macro level again. And so it's been really exciting to journey back in that fossil record into this 60 million year old soil to find the diversity of these carbon molecules that's really just un, unparalleled and unexperienced in the human species because we've only been around for 180,000 years. And so the, to put this stuff into human physiology has been a mind-blowing journey and a real sense of just humility and honor every time we get to put this stuff on our microscope because it just it keeps showing me over and over again that we have we so far went down the belief of human human health and human disease in the wrong direction because we kept studying it in in sterile environments our entire understanding of cardiovascular disease our entire understanding of cancer entire understanding of, of autoimmune disease all done in sterile laboratories no touch of the microbiome we didn't know that healing was possible because we've never studied the Synergistically, human body in the context yeah. of its yeah. nature. Yeah. And we've also studied everything with individual systems, right? Like, you know, the 
one guy's studying the heart, another woman's studying the lungs, another person's studying the brains, and no one's talking to each other. There's not enough synergy in the studying. You're exactly right. And I mean, that's kind of how I found myself into the niche of chemotherapy research as an endocrinologist, because none of the oncologists were being trained to study the mitochondria at the time. Uh, we thought this was a human genetic disease, a uh, thing called cancer, you know, increasing amount of DNA injuries and a lack of uh, DNA uh, repair enzymes and, you know, cancer promoting enzymes turned on. And we just thought this was a battle inside the human cell. And so nobody was looking at the mitochondria. And so because I came at it from a totally different you know viewpoint as an endocrinologist, it gave me you know, an opportunity to, to find a niche of research that was very unique. And so that's, you know, that's a huge problem because actually in the end, as it turns out, cancer is a metabolic disease, not a genetic disease. And it is a disease of the mitochondria. And yet if you ask any oncologist today, none of them will tell you that. I mean, maybe you'll find a couple in the country now that are aware of that. But our, our, our academic training is some 20, 30 years behind the science now. And so uh, it's exactly like you say, this this columnal, you know, columns of, of subspecialty training that we, you know, continue to get trained into is blocking the ingenuity to happen. It's keeping a multidisciplinary, you know, co-creative process in play, which again, I can't help but press the excitement of the, of the future of the internet when reinvented, man, we should all be cross-talking, cross-fertilizing mm -hmm. our ideas. Uh, I want, I want atomic physicists to be working on projects with on cancer. I want, you know, the the astro scientists to be working on soil biology. I want, you know, this huge cross-pollination to happen to totally totally blow our current paradigms apart and really start to build a cohesive model of how does human biology happen? How does it happen as an extension of biology and, and life on Earth itself? How does this little marble float in the blackness of space in a vacuum and, and thrive on the level that it has over the millennia? And how can we make sure we stay longer? So, you know, you're spot on. We need to change the way that we're taught and that we're trained and, and the structure of our academic institutions. We need it all to look like an organic garden where you have all these different species communicating and, and co collaborating and, and all the rest. Yeah, I'm such a believer in it. And as someone who has experienced and is still recovering from uh, SIRS, mold illness, um, yeah, wow, yeah, it was just so crazy. Like I'm a very logical and very intuitive person. And I, I know when I'm being told something that just does not make sense. And when, when, you know, you go and get all your cardiology tests cause you're having, um, ectopic beats and palpitations and all these crazy things happening to your heart only to be told your heart is perfect. And I don't want to see you till you're 55. Um, I'm just like, what? And then you go to your doctor and they say, maybe you need to see a sleep psychologist because you keep waking up. It's like, I'm waking up in a pool of sweat with palpitations. I really don't think this is a psychological problem. And, and be, if we got everybody talking, as they do in these forward-thinking, um, integrative communities, you start to solve problems for really complex situations, complex patients. It's inspiring. And, and you get to the root cause of stuff, which is the most important thing. And so let's do that for your condition real quick. Let's take a look at the root cause of that situation. So what you were experiencing is a huge instability in your autonomic nervous system and mm. the autonomic nervous system gener generates everything from your heart rate your respiratory rate uh, the sleep cycles uh, your uh, the type of waveform that's dominating your nervous system um, it, all of these different seemingly disparate things uh, are controlled by one autonomic nervous system and there's two halves of that sympathetic and parasympathetic and so you kept sliding into a sympathetic fight or flight response in the oh, autonomic yeah. nervous system in the middle of sleep or in the middle of traffic is typical where there's nothing really stressful happening. You're just sitting there and suddenly you're having, you know, what feels like a life threatening, you know, event happen in your body mm. and palpitations, anxiety, the sense of like, I'm, you know, my body's out of control. All of that stuff, it turns out, is not rooted in the brain or the autonomic nervous system or even in in the gut, it's actually rooted in the relationship between the microbiome to the to the afferent nerves that stick out of your gut lining, and so we've now found that there are specific species of bacteria that have to be present on the surface of your enteric endocrine cells uh, that makes some ninety percent of the serotonin in your body, some fifty percent of the dopamine in your body made right there in your gut lining. 
but abutting those enteric endocrine cells is an afferent nerve that's not only intertwined with your endocrine cell that's making the neurotransmitters that will eventually end up in your brain, then that same nerve is actually sticking its, its fingers out into the milieu of bacteria and fungi in your gut and communicating directly to them. The, the ion channel that they communicate through is identical on the surface of a bacteria to the surface of this human neuron. And so extraordinary biomimicry between the bacteria and this complex, you know, extra, you know, multicellular organism like a human, this eukaryote. And so we see this biomimicry happening in this, in this mode of transmission of, of ions, which exchange information between one cell to the next. And so you actually had, we're having a collapse of the microbiome of the gut leading to abnormal afferent signaling in, in, the, in the nervous system and a collapse of your neuro, neurotransmitter production at the gut lining. And so all of those things, uh, you know, ignited and you end up, of course, at a cardiovascular uh, location that's never seen a gut membrane under a microscope. Or if they did, it was in their first year of medical school or something some 20 years ago, have no memory of it. In fact, 20 years ago, we didn't even know that enteric endocrine cells were present there at, at any density. And we certainly didn't know that serotonin and dopamine were primarily made in the gut lining. Well, yeah, so, about you know, 20 years ago, realize, it was like four neurotransmitters, right? 20 years ago. That's it. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. it. You know, now, now we've gotten to the point where we know that the thyroid releasing hormone that goes on to, to and stimulate your whole thyroid cascade is actually a neurotransmitter, not a hormone as well. And so we're, we're just like the speed at which we're having to re, re kind of configure our understanding of biology is kind of dumbfounding and would be hopeless, frankly. If I had to rely on science to catch up to change the trajectory of human life, then I would have, I'd give up right now. I wouldn't, I would literally not spend another day in the lab because we'll be extinct by the time that would happen. And so instead I'll go sled with my kids and have fun. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in contrast, I think that the solution is not in the scientists, but it's in our own exquisite scientific machine that we call a human body. I can tell you in a split second, whether I had a good day yesterday or a good night of sleep last night, based on how I feel right now. I can tell you which things I probably need more of. I could probably use better deep cellular hydration right now. I could use another two hours of sleep. I could use more uh, vitamin C compounds in a complex delivery system like an orange. I could use you know some more of that citrus, and I need more vitamin D exposure to my skin. And so I know all that you know somewhat in my scientific background, but I could tell you that as anybody walking down the street, if I was given the opportunity to say, what are you missing the last 24 hours? What do you need to feel better? And so it's that, that huge intelligence of your body telling you what you need and responding to positive stimuli that you, and little smart choices you make in your daily basis, that I hang my hat on. That we can change the world with in 17 years. And so that's, that's really where my excitement is, is, you know, we're equipping you right now, I hope, with a bunch of questions during this interview yeah. and maybe a few answers to start you down some further questioning pathways. And so as you dig into this information and say, okay, my entire life, just like a garden, is not going to thrive unless I've got my healthy soil taken care of. What do I need to do that? Okay, I'm hearing fermented foods. I'm hearing be outside more. I'm hearing this, that I should eat more plant-based maybe. I need to find out about this glyphosate molecule where that's showing up in my diet. I need more organic food. Ultimately, I need to encourage my farmers to, to start regenerative soil practices and all of this. And so all of these things you know, give me hope for the future. And I think that you guys will all find that you are going to be part of that co-creative solution for humanity because you showed up right now. If you weren't part of that co-creative process, then you would not have bothered to show up at this moment, at this tipping point in history. Uh, I believe that you are inhabited by a soul that's ancient and you showed up in the body right now with some deep purpose. And you may be already fulfilled and, and in your purpose. You might be en route to that purpose or you may be completely stifled by a socioeconomic structure around you, an educational system around you and the like, that's keeping you entirely from your purpose. And I know that you'll know that because you're gonna feel depressed, you're gonna feel confused as to why you're here, why bother, all of these typical emotions are gonna be coursing through you on a daily basis because that's how it was for me a decade ago. At the top of my field, at the top of you know everything I was told I'd learn, you know, top 1% of everything, blah, blah, blah. No, I was not top 1% of anything. I was depressed. I was lost. I didn't know why I was here. And, and so I, I can tell you that uh, there's an opportunity for you to shift and shift big if that's where you're at in your life right now. Uh, take a courageous leap out of your current paradigm if you, if you don't have a sense of where your purpose is at this point. 
Zach, that is such a beautiful uh, summation of of our conversation today. I think um, I think you've just given people so much to think about. I am not going to go any further into uh, uh, glyphosate today with you because I think I'm just going to share some of the fantastic lectures that you've given over the years for the people who want to drill specifically into that. I know there are a lot of uh, farmers uh, and farmers' wives who are really concerned but just don't know where to start and how. And in the show notes today, guys, I'm going to put our top regenerative farmers in the States and the US and the UK um, simply because that's my network. If anyone wants to share in the comments of the show notes any other countries, please do. Uh, it's going to take all of us to start um, campaigning for this and and to show them that there's a market for it, right? Often farmers don't, don't change because they're worried and they're the ones who are also entrenched in this system. That's exactly right. And that's where we're pouring a lot of our attention now. I've started a nonprofit called Farmers Footprint. Uh, the website is farmersfootprint.us. And so farmersfootprint.us, and uh, we've got a documentary series uh, that is part of that educational thing, but the, the real call to action is to support farmers directly to make the transition. And so we're uh, making a call to action for $100 a year from consumers to sponsor one acre of farmland, farmland that's currently under chemical farming, and we'll bring the education and the resources to those farmers, as well as the marketplace that you guys can create by being a part of this. Um, to really make this transition quickly. And I really believe that it was as small an investment as $100 a, a year could be for all of us as consumers, we will immediately tip the balance to, to a huge economic advantage and incentive for farmers around the world to transition to a regenerative ag environment. So I'm delighted you have a list of regenerative ag uh, resources in Australia. Um, keep after those. All of you are voting with your dollars, so get to know those farmers, support them, and then think broadly about the opportunity to give economic incentive to those uh, chemical farmers that are, are currently locked in, in relationship with their banks and with an industry uh, that is nigh on to the pharmaceutical company owned by the same companies that run my pharmaceutical world as a doctor. So uh, break the paradigm with your dollar and, and let's get after it. Let's do it. And you got a hundred bucks from me. I'm literally going to jump onto the website right now and, and join up because I think, you know, so much of what we do in Australia takes our cue from the US. Um, I often call us a bit of a mini me and that can be as unfortunate as it is awesome, depending on what we're talking about. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, as you say, if we all get behind it, um, and I'm going to ask Charlie Arnott, one of our top regenerative farmers, uh, whether we have something like that in place here for Australian consumers to also um, feel like they can make a difference. But the U.S. listeners are absolutely going to be jumping on that. I know it from the conversations we have. It's very exciting. Absolutely. Um, and our trainers go worldwide. So our, our farm trainers and all that are already involved in Australia and, oh, wow. Canada and all around the world. So uh, we, we hope to support you directly as well uh, in that that arena, especially as these next couple of years tick by, yeah. uh, we're going to be a global force to, you know, with a goal of converting 10 million acres in the next three years, uh, but we'd like to see over a billion acres converted worldwide over the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, and in so doing, we're going to see an amazing reversal of so many, so much of the damage that we've done. Yeah, fantastic. And it really makes me think, you know, private business got us into this mess and the private business's effect on policy and politics through vested interests. So it only makes sense that you fight private business with private business because absolutely, it's the only way you can be so. Ultimately form private business. Yeah, exactly. uh, It was our convenience lifestyles. We stopped farming ourselves and we outsourced our food industry uh, to others. And that's, that's how we created the big industries of, of chemical farming. And so Fortunately, you know, business will will respond to consumer demand, and ultimately, we need to participate as far in that transit transition. And so, I encourage each and every one of you to grow at least one plant uh, that you're not currently growing. So, grow a new mint plant in the window, or a potted tomato plant this spring, or get a new garden put in with your kids. Uh, participate in this revolution of taking back our food industry from the big chemical farming industry. So good. So good. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zach. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely and uh, I look forward to welcoming you back in another year so we can just kick some goals and talk about the year that's been and and see that we're actually all making progress because I think, you know, it's one thing to talk about this stuff, but there's obviously a lot of people who are now actively working towards uh, change and it's always really positive to check back in with how much is changing. I love it. 
Very good to be on. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.